Attention! This makes absolutely no sense. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Xander's Facts. Hello, everybody. Welcome into the latest edition of the Xander's Facts podcast. I am, of course, the aforementioned Xander. It is Wednesday, December 20th, 2023. Thank you all so much for listening to episode 127. Yes, I do realize that it is a little later in the day on Wednesday that we're releasing this podcast. Y'all, I apologize if I totally ruined your Wednesday routine, but for good reason, because sometimes it takes time to get all the facts straight, to make sure everything's in order, check off all the boxes, make sure I've got all the facts. That's what I had to do this week because I feel like we've got a really good podcast this week that I'm going to talk about in just a second. Before we do, just wanted to remind you all that if you like the Xander's Facts podcast, if you think you're going to like all the facts on this week's edition, remember to follow this podcast, download this episode, episode 127, rate and review the podcast, check us out on all the socials, threads, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, at Xander's Facts, that's Xander with a Z, and most importantly, remember to tell all your friends. We like to call it spreading the facts, y'all. Tell all your friends about the podcast. The newsletter, Xander's Weekend Facts. If you didn't know, it's a recap of the week's top headlines. It comes out every Sunday morning. It is free to sign up in this episode's description. The link is there to get it in your email inbox when it comes out every Sunday morning. And also check out the Xander's Facts link tree because it has all the Xander's Facts links that you need. Everywhere to get the podcast, the newsletter, the socials, all the facts are linked also in this episode's description. This week, though, on episode 127, let's get to it because I'm excited about what we're talking about this week, y'all. We are going to be combining two of my favorite subject areas on this podcast, politics and sports. And no, I know what you're thinking. Shut up and dribble. No, we're not going to shut up and dribble, Laura Ingraham, because we're not even talking exactly about what inspired you to say that, even though, which actually, if you don't know... LeBron James and Kevin Durant, two NBA basketball players, had the audacity to speak out against Donnie Boy, Laura Ingraham's beloved Donnie Boy. Gasp. Oh my gosh. So terrible. Whoa. We're not talking about that this week. But we are taking a look at another big issue that combines the two worlds of politics and sports, and it also gets into the realm of sports business which we haven't talked a lot about on this podcast before, but I've always found it really fascinating because it actually gets into how these events that millions of us are watching get put on in the first place, what goes on behind the scenes. This week, we are talking about sports stadiums. In the U.S., every NFL team has one. A couple NFL teams share one, but there's about 30 NFL stadiums. Every NBA team has one. The two teams that share one, the Clippers and the Lakers, the Clippers are building their own, so pretty soon there's going to be 30 different ones. Every MLB team has a stadium, every NHL team, every MLS club, college football team, college basketball team, and so on. There are thousands of stadiums in the U.S., and they come in all different shapes and sizes. You can have a high school football field that sits just a couple hundred people to Indianapolis Motor Speedway in Indiana, which is the largest stadium, I guess you could call it a stadium, in the U.S. It currently sits over 250,000 people, and in 2016 had an attendance of 350,000 for the 100th running of the Indy 500. And since the most popular sport in America is football, do y'all know which football game 
holds the world record for highest attendance. Here's a fact. That would be the 2016 Battle at Bristol at Bristol Motor Speedway in Tennessee between the Tennessee Volunteers and the Virginia Tech Hokies, y'all. That's a fact! VT ultimately did lose that game. We're not going to talk about that. That is a good thing to note, though, because I will be mentioning Virginia Tech a little bit later on on this podcast. I didn't just pull that fact out of nowhere. But another thing with these stadiums that comes in all shapes and sizes is the cost of building and maintaining them and how they're paid for. Because while you probably have your local high school football stadium or like a summer league, minor league baseball stadium that's relatively small, doesn't cost that much money to build or maintain, you also have something like SoFi Stadium in Inglewood, California. That's the home of the Los Angeles Chargers and the Rams who play in the NFL. That costs $5 billion, with a B, dollars to construct just a couple years ago. Now, SoFi Stadium was actually funded solely by Stan Kroenke, who is the owner of Kroenke Sports Entertainment, which controls the Rams, and he holds interests in a bunch of other teams too, the Denver Nuggets and the NBA, the Colorado Avalanche in the NHL, Colorado Rapids in MLS, and Arsenal over in England in the Premier League, and a bunch of other smaller franchises too. But then you also have Raymond James Stadium, which is in Tampa, Florida. That's the home of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers of the NFL, and that opens back in 1998. But that was funded using only public money. None of the money of the owner of the Buccaneers went into that stadium. Now, those are examples on the extreme ends of the spectrum. Most professional sports stadiums in the U.S. are actually funded using a mix of private and public funds, which begs the question, should public money be used to fund the construction of professional sports stadiums? That's the question we're asking in the title of this podcast this week. And this got brought to my attention last week because Monumental Sports and Entertainment If you don't know, that's the company that owns the Washington Wizards, who play in the NBA, and the Washington Capitals, who play in the NHL, two of my favorite teams, personally. Monumental announced plans for a $2 billion arena complex just outside of Washington, D.C., in Alexandria, Virginia. That all sounds amazing, right? Oh my gosh! There's a problem, though. The project would cost an estimated $1.35 billion, with a B, dollars in state and local funds, according to the Washington Post. And I've got some conflicting thoughts about this. So I wanted to take a look at what other localities, states, and professional sports teams have done in similar situations to kind of clear my view on this issue. Because a lot of the issues we talk about on this podcast are like cut and dry. This is the right thing. This is the wrong thing. But that may not be the case for some issues. Like maybe this one. I'm going to give you all the facts. I'm going to let you decipher what to think on the issue of public funds for pro sports stadiums. So that's what we're going to talk about this week on the podcast. We're going to take a look at how pro sports stadiums in the U.S. have been funded in the past, why they've been getting public money, and what to make of this new proposal in the nation's capital region up in D.C. Let's do it. I'm excited, y'all. We've got a lot of facts to talk about on this podcast. And let's get started by taking a look at how stadiums have been funded in the past, at least in the last couple of decades in the U.S. As I mentioned earlier, we've had stadiums that have been fully funded by the owners of the franchises who play in them, and we've also had stadiums on the opposite end of the spectrum, those that have been funded solely by taxpayers. But again, 
Those are far and few between. There's only three NFL stadiums currently in use out of the 30 that have been fully funded by private money. Those are SoFi Stadium, Gillette Stadium in Massachusetts outside of Boston, the home of the New England Patriots, and MetLife Stadium, which is in New Jersey and currently hosts the New York Giants and the Jets. So only three out of 30 have been funded solely by private money. Now, Andrew Zimbalist, who's from Smith College, found in an article that he wrote on EconoFactor earlier this year that between 1970 and 2020, 135 new or replacement stadiums and arenas hosting professional sports teams opened in the U.S. and Canada, which is about an average of 2.6 per year. During that same time frame, $33 billion in public funds was apportioned to the construction of these stadiums and arenas. Some of the venues who use public funds include, I've got a bunch here, AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas. You may know that one as Jerry World, one of the most glamorous venues you'll ever find, home of the Dallas Cowboys. Now, Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, put in $750 million of his own money, but $444 million of the construction costs came from taxpayers. Head up to Nashville, where $207 million of public money was used to build Nissan Stadium, which is the current home of the Tennessee Titans, and the team in the NFL chipped in just $85 million. Out west in Seattle, what is now Lumen Field was built with just $130 million of private money, while the state of Washington and the city of Seattle have actually promised $300 million. In Atlanta, the dazzling Mercedes-Benz Stadium that opened just a few years ago used $1.3 billion in private funds. Taxpayers were on the hook for $214 million. And in 2020, the Raiders opened their new stadium and their new home of Las Vegas. That cost almost $2 billion to build. $1.22 billion came from the owner of the team, Mark Davis, and the league. And Clark County, Nevada gave $750 million in public funds. But it's not just football stadiums that are getting tons of taxpayer money. City Field in New York, which is the home of the MLB's Mets, got $616 million in public subsidies. And then if we jump over to the Bronx, the new Yankee Stadium, which opened in 2009, got $1.2 billion in public funds. And that's just in the same city. Back to Atlanta, State Farm Arena, which is the home of the Hawks and the NBA, cost $213 million to build. $194 million of that was picked up by the city of Atlanta. Then in Memphis, FedEx Forum, which is shared by both the Grizzlies of the NBA and the University of Memphis's men's basketball team, when that was built in 2004, the entirety of the $250 million cost was put on taxpayers. That's a lot of numbers. In total, that $33 billion that I said earlier that represents about 73% of the cost to build these sites. And more recently, this trend hasn't slowed down. Going back to Nashville, the Titans are already planning on replacing Nissan Stadium, which they built just in 1999. Earlier this year, the city of Nashville approved a proposal for a new $2.1 billion enclosed stadium that's going to open in the next few years. And according to the Tennessean, which is a local newspaper in Nashville, the Titans and the NFL are going to put in $840 million in private financing to the construction of the stadium. And on the other side, the state of Tennessee 
is contributing $500 million in bonds, and the city of Nashville is putting in another $760 million. And all this is to replace a stadium that is less than 25 years old, one that also had public funds go into its construction. You go over to Buffalo, and the NFL's Bills, the state of New York, and Erie County announced a deal that would build a brand new stadium in Buffalo at the cost of $1.4 billion. $600 million of that would be picked up by New York state taxpayers, and another $250 million coming from Erie County. Jacksonville is currently in negotiations with the NFL's Jaguars over nearly $1 billion in public funds. That would be put towards upgrades at their current stadium, TIAA Bank Field, that's in the city. And then over in Chicago, the city is currently in a fight with several suburban localities regarding the future of the NFL's Bears. The Bears actually bought a racetrack site in Arlington Heights, which is a Chicago suburb, with plans to build a stadium there, but negotiations with Arlington Heights have fallen flat. So now you've got several localities in Chicagoland who are fighting over who can give the Bears the best deal. And the city of Chicago is proposing renovations to the historic 99-year-old Soldier Field, which the Bears have played in every year since 1971, except for when the stadium was under major renovations in 2002. Before that, the Bears actually played in Wrigley Field for the previous 50 years, the home of the Cubs, which I didn't know. This is true. And in the NBA, voters in Oklahoma City actually just approved spending $850 million for a new arena for the Thunder, which would be the record right now for committed public spending towards a basketball facility. And this is to replace the Paycom Center, which, if you don't know, used to be Chesapeake Energy Arena. That was built in 2002. So that's a 21-year-old arena. And by the way, the only reason Oklahoma City has a basketball team in the NBA is because the ownership group got in a tussle with the city of Seattle when they were the Supersonics, over public funding for their arena. And so they left because Oklahoma City gave them a deal. And so all in all there, you've got lots of stadiums being built and lots of public money being used. Of course, not all of them. I will commend the Golden State Warriors on their new arena, the $1.4 billion Chase Center, which is in San Francisco. That was built exclusively with private funds. But that doesn't follow the main trend. The trend still begs the question, why is public money being used to finance pro sports stadiums? Like, am I not mistaken, or aren't these professional sports teams, these owners, and these leagues raking in billions upon billions of dollars on their own? And if you're asking the same questions, you're not wrong to assume, because the 32 teams in the NFL collectively generated over $11.9 billion in revenue last year. And other top leagues aren't far behind. The NBA had over $10 billion in revenue last year. MLB teams in total made just short of $10 billion. And NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell's goal is for the league to achieve $25 billion revenue by 2027. So there's that. But you also might be asking, doesn't the league and the owners have to spend that revenue on expenses like player salaries? Well, yes, they do. But there's currently a salary cap in the NFL on player salaries, that's just about $225 million per season. Teams are making much more than that per season, which can fill up other expenses and much more. Well, okay, but maybe the owners just can't afford to fully fund these stadiums. That may be another question you're asking. 
Well, one measure we can look at, of course, is how much these owners are worth. What is their net worth? And the richest owner in the NFL, if you didn't know, is David Tepper of the Carolina Panthers. He is worth over $16.5 billion. Now, this is the same David Tepper who needed government incentives to build an $800 million practice facility and team headquarters in Rock Hill, South Carolina, a project that has now been abandoned after an investigation into the funds that the team received. This is also the same David Tepper who, according to an Axios report from earlier this month, is preparing to ask the city of Charlotte in North Carolina for a public investment in Bank of America Stadium next year. So, you might think he seems to have enough money to build an $800 million practice facility, right? And to pay for renovations to his team stadium. That's what I would think. The next two owners on that list Stan Kroenke of the Rams and Jerry Jones of the Cowboys are both worth over $10 billion. In fact, every owner on the list of top 15 richest owners in the NFL that was compiled by CBS Sports last year are worth over $3.5 billion. So you'd think that these owners can pay for the stadiums on their own dime or get their own financing, right? But that's not happening in most cases. Now, Stan Kroenke did it with SoFi Stadium. But that's not happening in most cases. So again, why is public money being used to finance pro sports stadiums? And to answer that question, there's several reasons. Number one, the notion that sports venues are an economic engine for the community they're in. That's, of course, what the owners and the leagues would like you to think. There's also a lot of people who really just like having a local team to root for whose games you can easily get to. And that gives teams leverage over localities because fans don't want to see their teams leave. And I'll give you a couple of examples here. When the Rams were in St. Louis, they played at the Edward James Dome, which had been partially funded by taxpayer money. But when the time came for renovations, owner Stan Kroenke had the option of taking $400 million in public money, or he could build a brand new stadium in Los Angeles. So he left. Now, obviously, he didn't get public money to build in Los Angeles. That's kind of a different scenario. Same with San Diego, too, because the city refused to pay out what the NFL's chargers wanted to replace Qualcomm Stadium. In fact, voters rejected giving public funds, and so the chargers moved to Los Angeles. The Raiders, this is a better example, they got a better offer from Los Angeles than from Oakland, so they moved. In baseball, The Oakland A's appear to be headed to Las Vegas as well because they got a better offer elsewhere. Teams can up and move to a new city because they got a better offer elsewhere. As long as the league approves, you're good to go. It's happened time and time again in the U.S. because there aren't enough major metropolises in America to go around for 32 NFL franchises. You've got teams in Green Bay, Cleveland, Cincinnati. Don't you think like a city like Orlando or Memphis or Portland or Salt Lake City or San Diego or St. Louis would like a team. But you know, that's the reality of the situation. But like I said, fans don't want their favorite teams to move across the country. So if public funding is going to keep them in their locality, they're going to pressure their local politicians and leaders to do what they can to keep them. Even if that means they'll ultimately be on the hook for funding them. And while public financing for sports venues in the U.S. has been happening for close to a century, a relatively recent development has actually enhanced the amount of money 
that state and local governments are paying towards these venues. Now, most of the time, when public funding goes toward a stadium or an arena, it comes from a municipal bond that comes from a state or local government. And sometimes these bonds are tax exempt. That has to be signed off by the federal government. Now, these municipal bonds aren't just used for stadiums. They're often used to fund schools, hospitals, airports, roads, infrastructure, basically. Now, private equities could still have access to these bonds, but previously, they were also subject to a volume cap, which limited how many of these bonds were issued annually. But that cap didn't apply to stadiums, beginning with way back when these bonds started to be issued back in 1913. So now let's go to a bill passed in 1986, the Tax Reform Act of 1986, under the presidency of one Mr. Ronnie Reagan. We all know the economic genius that Reagan was, what with his two recessions during his two terms, cutting taxes and raising spending, borrowing money from Social Security, all that stuff. But in 1986, this bill was supposed to end the exemptions for bonds for private use, like for stadiums. But that didn't happen. What the bill did was create this infamous thing we like to call a loophole. The bill created a loophole that actually allows stadiums to be backed by tax-free public bonds, working by creating an artificial financing structure through these tax-exempt bonds. But to gain access to these bonds, the private company in question has to fail one of two tests that is outlined in the legislation. First is the private use case test. No more than 10% of the money from the bond can be used by a private entity. And the second test is the private payment test, which states that no more than 10% of the bond's debt service is backed by the stadium, meaning that if a state or local government finances at least 90% of the stadium, it fails that test. So all of these factors have made it so that public financing is commonplace in the construction of pro sports stadiums in the U.S. But I got another question for you. Is it a good investment on behalf of the state or the locality? And you would think that if it wasn't a good investment, then we would have stopped, right? Well, the results to that question, is it a good investment, overwhelmingly point in the direction of the answer being no. If you'll remember that EconoFact article that I mentioned earlier, the author cites two studies that have looked at the role public financing has played in these deals. One of those studies is called The Impact of Professional Sports Franchises and Venues on Local Economies, a Comprehensive Study. You can read that paper. It's 88 pages. It's available for free online. But I'll just read you the abstract here, basically the summary of what they found. Quote, Local governments routinely subsidize sports stadiums and arenas using the justification that hosting professional franchises produces economic development and social benefits in the community. The prevalence of venue subsidies generated an extensive and vibrant research literature, which spans over 30 years and includes more than 130 studies. We chronicle this body of research from early studies of tangible economic impacts in metropolitan areas using basic empirical methods through recent analyses that focus on sublocal and non-pecuniary effects and employ more sophisticated empirical methods. Though findings have become more nuanced, recent analyses continue to confirm the decades-old consensus of very limited economic impacts on professional sports teams and stadiums. 
even with added non-pecuniary social benefits from quality of life externalities and civic pride, welfare improvements from hosting teams tend to fall well short of covering public outlays. Thus, the large subsidies commonly devoted to constructing professional sports venues are not justified as worthwhile public investments. We also investigate the paradox of local governments continuing to subsidize sports facilities despite overwhelming evidence of their economic impotence. Our analysis informs academic researchers and policymakers to motivate future studies and promote sound policy decisions guided by relevant research findings, unquote. So when taking a look at over 130 cases, at least according to these authors, the results typically point towards the investments being a bad one, at least from an economic standpoint. Of course, that doesn't translate to every case. Take Santa Clara in California. The 49ers Levi's Stadium has generated over $2 billion for the local economy, at least according to a study that was released by the team earlier this year. And the stadium has contributed $468 million in tax revenue, with the Santa Clara Stadium Authority, which is the public entity that was created to obtain financing and oversee the stadium, more than 15 years ahead of repaying the $950 million in loans that were taken out to construct the stadium. And the 49ers noted that it wasn't just 49ers football games that were positively impacting the local economy. They cited the presence of non-football events like two Taylor Swift concerts that took place earlier this year that benefited the local economy. So Levi Stadium is an example of a good investment. However, it appears to be in the minority. Because we can take a look at Chicago, too. The Bears, as I said, are currently looking at options for the future, but the city is still dealing with the effects of the 2002 renovation on the stadium. While the Bears and the NFL put in about $200 million, public financing covered the remaining $387 million in funds that funded that renovation. And the city of Chicago financed this money through municipal bonds that were levied by a tourism tax, which is a common way to pay for these stadiums. Because if you go back to the tax reform bill of 1986, the repayment of these bonds that are tax-exempt can't come from revenue that was generated by the stadium directly or by rent collection. So that means states and localities typically rely on taxes like hotel levies and car rental taxes, what are typically called tourist taxes, to pay the bonds off. The EconoFact article talks about these taxes and the effect they can have, though. I'll read that article here, or at least part of it here for you. Quote, Although economists don't always agree on the fiscal impact of specific stadium projects, they do agree that careful planning and financial caution are imperative. Politicians often claim that there will be no new taxes on the residents resulting from the public financing of the stadium. They allege that the plan will use, quote-unquote, tourist taxes, implying that the tax burden will fall on visitors, not residents. On examination, this is illusory. Tourist taxes include hotel and car rental taxes. When these taxes are raised, there are two possibilities. A, they will discourage visitors from traveling to the city, or B, they won't discourage visitors. In the former case, there will be a negative effect on economic activity, and tax revenues could actually decline. In the latter case, tax revenues would increase, but these taxes could be levied without financing a new stadium, and they could be used to either lower resident taxes or to increase local services. So, tourist taxes are not a free good to local residents. 
Another misleading assertion is connected to the use of TIF, tax increment financing. TIFs can take a variety of forms, but the basic structure is that the city declares a special tax district surrounding the stadium and adjacent streets, sometimes with a radius of a mile or more. The city then uses the tax revenue collected within this district to finance the debt service on a stadium bond that is issued. The problem here is twofold. Some of the district's tax revenue would have been generated without the new stadium, and some of the new activity within the district comes from businesses relocating to within it. In the latter instance, tax revenue increases within the district, but it decreases outside the district, unquote. So these tourist taxes, which have paid for many of these projects, can have adversely negative effects on the locality. And of course, without a stadium, some of these taxes could maybe even still have been implemented to help fund other city services. But anyways, back to the Bears. The city of Chicago has actually been deferring payments on the renovations to Soldier Field. So that $387 million that the city initially owed has now ballooned to almost double. The city now owes $640 million on what was once a $387 million project. Uh-oh. And who's going to be paying that? The city and the taxpayers. Now, of course, proponents of public financing would argue that spillover gains can make the investment of a sports facility worthwhile. Now, spillover gains are basically the idea that the construction and the presence of a stadium can indirectly create a positive economic impact. So when CNBC was taking a look at this issue earlier last year, they were provided a statement by the NFL that reads, quote, Private-public partnerships have worked well for decades as a vehicle to build multi-use community stadiums that are an immense source of civic pride, job generation, and long-lasting economic impact for NFL teams. We understand that these are difficult decisions for communities and leaders and appreciate the support. Unquote. And while this does appear to be working for the Raiders in Las Vegas, they appear to be easily recouping their investment in Allegiant Stadium by getting revenue from a live entertainment tax, a ticket tax, sales tax, and a payroll tax. Not everywhere is Las Vegas. That is one of America's tourist hubs. And as Tracy Hayden Lowe, who's a fellow at the Brookings Institution, told CNBC, you can make the case that a stadium pays for itself with the sales taxes that come in, but she notes that this is only true if you assume that the land and the borrowing capacity to raise the money to build a stadium could not have been accomplished for any other project that would have gone on that land if there was no stadium in the first place. And in most or all cases, that's not true, especially when it's the case that money that is generated by the team occupying the stadium does not go back to the city. It goes back to the organization itself. And then if the stadium is publicly owned, property taxes aren't being paid on that land. That's another whammy onto the situation for states and local governments. Here's another example. Kansas City, Missouri. Right now, you've got Arrowhead Stadium, which is the home of the Chiefs in the NFL, and Kauffman Stadium, which is the home of the Royals of Major League Baseball. They are both situated at the Harry Truman Sports Complex, which is located just a little bit outside of the city but the Royals are financing plans to build a new stadium in downtown Kansas City, one that would rely on public funds, to be built. Now, back nearly two decades ago, when the city built the T-Mobile Center in its downtown arena, which currently hosts the Big 12 Conference 
men's basketball tournament for men's college basketball, the city instituted tourist taxes on hotels and rental cars to pay for it. But for this new ballpark, Royals owner John Sherman is looking at enforcing a sales tax. But here's the issue with sales taxes. They are some of the most regressive taxes out there because according to the IRS, they take a larger percentage of income from low-income taxpayers than from high-income taxpayers. So you're hurting the people who, in the first place, aren't going to have as much disposable income to go to a game. You're hurting those people even more by saying, we're going to fund this new ballpark with a regressive tax. So to fully answer the question of whether the investment is economically advantageous to localities, oftentimes it's not. Now, there are certainly cases where it has been, but more often than not, it hasn't. Of course, that is not all that localities are looking at when financing these stadiums. Having pro sports stadiums, of course, brings publicity to a city. It might make people want to move there and anything else that can be considered as a spillover gain. You got to think that factors into the equation as well. But it's often a trade-off because if you're willing to spend hundreds of millions and nearly a billion dollars on a stadium, why not use that money for schools, roads, hospitals, and other services that could benefit your citizens? Now, it is the case sometimes that you wouldn't get that tax revenue if the stadium didn't go in the first place. But that's not the case for all of these investments. So it's not often that clear-cut just saying that we're going to give public money, you're going to be spending your tax dollars on this new stadium. It's not often that clear-cut, because the promises these stadiums bring mean that, in some instances, the localities wind up not using tax money of the citizens, but the tax money of tourists. And then sometimes localities wind up with more money from tax revenue that they can actually use for those projects. But it's not always the case. And so... You can't universally say this is a bad thing to use public money because sometimes it's worked out, at least from the standpoint of is it economically advantageous for the locality and the state. But again, most of the time it hasn't been, which all brings me to why I wanted to do this podcast, this new proposal that kind of hits close to home for me. Because last week, the governor of Virginia, we all know him as Mr. Glenjamin, Glenn Youngkin, Monumental Sports and Entertainment and the city of Alexandria, Virginia, announced an agreement that would bring a $2.2 billion entertainment district to the Potomac Yard neighborhood in Alexandria. The district would be anchored by what is called a state-of-the-art 20,000-seat arena, along with practice facilities for the Washington Capitals and the Wizards, esports facilities, a fan plaza, a performing arts venue, a studio for Monumental Sports Network, which is the regional sports network that airs the Capitals and the Wizards games, and Monumental's global corporate headquarters. Surrounding the area to the west is currently a shopping center that's headlined by a Target and a Barnes & Noble, which is slated as future development that would include office, residential, retail, hotel, and community gathering spaces. And to the north of the site, and my personal favorite part, is the currently under construction Virginia Tech Innovation Campus, which is slated to open next year. That's a big fact. At its full capacity, the campus is going to host nearly 1,000 master's and doctoral students, and Virginia Tech also had a presence at the announcement event for the new arena. Because I gotta be honest with y'all, first off, I was kind of like, 
why do we need this arena in Virginia? We already have the arena in D.C., which is where the Capitals and the Wizards currently play. But then I saw the VT logo. Virginia Tech was involved. I was like, oh my gosh, hold on a second. This is intriguing. But again, this is not definitive. The agreement is non-binding and is not 100% a certainty at this point. Although Youngkin did say, quote, this is the exact same process we undertook with HQ2, unquote, when he's referring to Amazon's second headquarters that were selected a few years ago, just a few miles away to the north in Arlington County in Virginia. But Glenjamin, let me just tell you something. You didn't do a damn thing for that we. That was not your administration. That was the previous governor, Ralph Northam, who's a Democrat. So I don't know what you mean when you say the word we. The exact same process we undertook. You didn't do anything. But anyways, the proposal all sounds great. It wouldn't just be an arena. It would be like an entire new neighborhood of residential business entertainment that's anchored by an arena. This whole new district. That all sounds great. Until you get into the weeds. Because the Washington Post found that the project would receive an estimated $1.35 billion in state and local funds if it goes through the largest arena subsidy in the history of this country. The Post obtained a copy of the 37-page study that was made by the investment bank J.P. Morgan for the state, which proposes that Virginia would need to create a sports and entertainment authority for the district. That's pretty common in these scenarios. As I mentioned earlier, Nashville has one, Chicago has one. It's a public entity, and it's a part of the government. And that would issue then two bond offerings that would be repaid over the next 40 years, along with contributing an additional $300 million in existing city and state funds. One of those bonds would be approximately $1.05 billion, and that would be paid back with tax receipts from the project, parking revenue, and the process that could come from a sale of the naming rights of the campus area. And the other bonds, which would be $416 million, would be repaid by lease payments from Monumental. Ted Leonsis, who is the owner of Monumental, as well as the Capitals and the Wizards, would see his company contribute up to $819 million over the life of the project. Monumental would have the right to sell naming rights to the arena itself and keep the proceeds, but it would be the sports authority that would hold control over naming rights for the district. And the city of Alexandria would have to pay $106 million of its own money, including over $50 million to cover half the cost of the concert hall, which would be co-owned with Monumental. And when Alexandria Mayor Justin Wilson, who's a Democrat, met with residents of the nearby Del Rey neighborhood, he was met with almost unanimous opposition to the project. But Wilson assured them that parking costs would be used to pay back the bond, which he said wouldn't enrich or incentivize a billionaire like Leonsis and would, quote, ultimately yield revenue for the city, unquote. Now, the president and chief executive of the Alexandria Economic Development Partnership, Stephanie Landrum, said, though, that the city would use some existing funds, including from its capital improvement and its general budgets for the project. But she said that Alexandria will be making additional revenue from the development that will go around the arena saying, quote, this money doesn't exist unless we do the projects, unquote. So the state would also have to make an upfront investment of about 
150 to 200 million dollars by redirecting existing transportation funds, which contradicts what Yunkin's office said last week when in a news release it claims, quote, there is no upfront investment or inclusion of any taxes already being collected by the Commonwealth to repay the bonds, and there will be no tax increases for local residents, unquote. Um, so, yeah. And throughout the Post's article discussing the study, there appear to be many contradictions of what people are saying, showing that this plan definitely isn't finalized. Like, here's another one. The study envisions that the arena would host 220 events per year, but that's 21 more than what Capital One Arena, which is the arena in Washington, D.C., where the Capitals and the Wizards currently play, that's 21 more than what that arena hosted in 2019, before COVID. And Virginia's projection also includes 17 Georgetown University men's basketball games at the new arena, but Monumental has said that they're going to keep playing their home games at Capital One Arena. And the study even doesn't fully account for who would be on the hook for the $1.4 billion in debt. And it doesn't include analysis for how Alexandria would bear an amount of borrowing if the sports authority ultimately defaulted on its bonds. Alexandria has a capital improvement budget of $2.4 billion for the entire city of 150,000 people. That's a lot, but we're talking about a $2.2 billion entertainment district. Now, there is analysis from Public Resources Advisory Group, which is a consultant that was hired by the state, that the paying back of about $576 million wouldn't negatively impact the state's credit rating, though it could have, quote, reduced debt capacity and flexibility for other projects, unquote. Right now, Virginia is just one of 13 states that has a perfect credit rating with all three of the major credit rating agencies. That's Standard & Poor's, Fitch, and Moody's. That's as of 2021. If you're wondering, the other states are Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Indiana, Iowa, Maryland, Missouri, North Carolina, South Dakota, Texas, Tennessee, and Utah. It's the truth. So ultimately, if everything went according to the plan, the burden on existing taxpayers actually wouldn't be too great. Most of the revenue would come from the site itself. Again, if everything goes according to plan, you know how I say that. But $200 million in existing revenues from the state and $100 million from the city of Alexandria is still a lot of money. And then let's just go take a look at the net worth of Ted Leonsis again. Because Forbes estimated this year it sat at $2.8 billion. If you didn't know, he's a former senior executive at AOL, back when AOL was big time. So again, why can his company only muster up about $800 million for this deal? Like, really? Well, for that answer, we can go back to the list of reasons we were discussing earlier as to why sports teams have so much leverage in these negotiations. As I mentioned, the Wizards and the Capitals, which Leonsis owns, currently play at Capital One Arena, which is located in the Chinatown neighborhood in downtown Washington, D.C. I went to the arena earlier this year, y'all, by the way. It's, in fact, it's the only NBA arena I've been to. But it just received a brand new giant scoreboard. It's a very nice arena. There's nothing wrong with it. It opened in 1997. 26 years ago. Now, is it as nice as something like the new Chase Center in San Francisco or the Barclays Center in Brooklyn that hosts the Nets? No, but it's a perfectly acceptable NBA and NHL arena. But with the lease that Leonsis has with the district, it allows for an out in 2027 
if he pays off a $36 million bond. And because of that, he could be looking to either garner more money from DC or go elsewhere. Now, before the teams played in DC, their home games were at an arena in Landover, Maryland. And since Maryland and Virginia are both able to offer public financing on a new venue, why wouldn't he look elsewhere? Like, let's be honest, if y'all were in the same position, if I was in the same position, I probably would too. Because I'm able to. The reality of the situation has led DC, which, since Leonsis made that announcement with Virginia, they've offered him $500 million for renovations to Capital One Arena and an extended lease, but DC now has to fight against neighboring states in Maryland and Virginia and localities in those states. That's not ideal, but there are issues that go beyond economics and funding with this plan. Like as I said, the funding doesn't look too bad if it goes according to plan, and again, who knows? But there are issues that go beyond that. The location where this arena is planned to go is an extremely busy part of Northern Virginia. It's just south of Reagan National Airport. There's only one major road artery that's close to the site, which is Route 1, although it is served by a recently opened metro station. But again, they opened that metro station not knowing that there was going to be an arena there. So if to handle that arena capacity, they'd probably have to expand a station they just opened. And the area already suffers from bad traffic, though. An arena with 200 events per year likely isn't going to help matters. And there's no word right now on plans that would help alleviate congestion. And while many would probably take the metro to the arena, WMATA, the Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority, is currently facing a massive funding gap, partially because Virginia is not giving enough funds to public transportation and has claimed. WMATA has, that it might have to close some of its lesser-performing stations in order to stay on budget. That could include the Potomac Yard station that would serve the arena. So maybe Virginia should up the funds to the metro so public transportation to the arena will work, and so it will actually operate efficiently in an area of the country that constantly has road congestion. Like, the roads are bad in the DMV, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, if you don't know. The roads are bad now. Imagine if they got rid of the metro. Like, that would be a nightmare. So maybe Mr. Glenjamin's budget that he unveiled on Wednesday, good thing we're doing this podcast later on Wednesday so I could read this, maybe that budget includes increased funding for metro, right? You would think so, but you would be wrong. Whoops. Instead, the budget he presented to the General Assembly would cut income tax while raising sales taxes. Remember when we talked about how sales tax is regressive and has a worse effect on lower income individuals than higher incomes? On the other hand, in Virginia, the income tax is progressive, where the tax rate increases as the taxable amount increases as well. So in terms of Metro, Yunkin said that he's not ready to boost Virginia's contribution until the transit authority operates more efficiently. Which, how are they going to operate more efficiently if you don't give them money to operate in the first place? So he won't increase funds for public transit, which directly helps lower-income communities, and basically everyone else in Northern Virginia, to be quite frank. Like, you're out of your mind if you don't think it helps everybody. But Glenjamin wants to lower the income tax and raise the sales tax, because what would that do? That would help his fellow wealthy. Buddies, 
John Remember Glenjamin's got a lot of money. And so why wouldn't he help out his fellow millionaires and billionaires? I'll just say, though, Glenjamin, have fun getting that budget through the Democratic-controlled legislator. Because as I said, politics is going to get into all of this as well. Because in order for the plan for the arena to be fully approved, you need approval from both the Alexandria City Council and the Virginia General Assembly, which isn't a done deal. While this, you know, isn't exactly a partisan issue, you have to admit Democrats love giving out public financing just as much as Republicans, it seems. But remember who controls the legislature in Virginia? Democrats took control of both chambers of the General Assembly in last month's Virginia elections. And on Tuesday, the president pro tempore of the Senate, the state Senate, one of the top Democrats in Virginia politics, Luis Lucas, tweeted out, quote, Anyone who thinks I'm going to approve an arena in Northern Virginia using tax dollars before we deliver on toll relief and for public schools in Hampton Roads must think I have dumbass written on my forehead, unquote. Just for context, she is from Hampton Roads, Portsmouth. So it's not a given that this gets approved through the legislature or through Alexandria City Council. There's also the fact that moving the Wizards and the Capitals from D.C. to Virginia is going to have a negative impact on D.C., whose downtown area has not really recovered that well from the pandemic. And Monumental has claimed that it's still going to operate Capital One Arena so concerts and other entertainment can take place, including Leonsis says he would move the WNBA team that he owns, the Washington Mystics, into the arena. It's hard to imagine how many of those entertainment acts would actually choose that arena over a brand new venue just a few miles south in Virginia. Like these two sites, they're not very far from each other, but that still has a big impact, moving an arena from downtown DC out to Virginia. And then we also have the fact that this isn't even the only sports venue fight that's going to be going on in the DMV area in the foreseeable future, because we've got the Washington Commanders, the commies from the NFL, they're under a new ownership group, which is led by Josh Harris. They're looking for a new stadium to replace FedEx Field in Landover, Maryland, which I haven't been to, but is universally regarded as a total dump, even though it opened, for reference, in the same year as Capital One Arena in 1997. Now, you remember I talked about Soldier Field in Chicago opening way back in 1924. There's another historical NFL venue, Lambeau Field in Green Bay, bucket list item, basically, if you're an NFL fan to go to. That stadium opened in 1957 in Wisconsin. There's three stadiums that are still in use, Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City, Highmark Stadium in Buffalo, and the Caesars Superdome in New Orleans, which were all built in the 1970s. So a stadium's lifespan certainly does not max out at less than 30 years, unless the owner wants it to. But that, again, is mostly due to former team owner Daniel Snyder and his failure to keep up with the maintenance of the venue and everything else associated with that organization. But either way, both Maryland and Virginia state governments have had discussions with the ownership group on a space for a new stadium and public funding to come with it. And there's also been discussions with D.C. on building a new stadium on the site of RFK Stadium, which is where the team played for decades and actually had its most success. They won three Super Bowls while playing at RFK, which I think that's where they should go. That makes sense because the land and the public transportation access is already there. But the federal government would have to get involved 
for that to become a reality. So I don't know about all that. So to wrap that all up, I definitely see positives in this arena plan. Having a pro sports team or two play in Virginia would be awesome, and it would give the Commonwealth a venue to host some of the world's best entertainment. That'd be good for Virginia, and I'm down for what's good for Virginia. Combining it with hotels, residential, and commercial space is a bonus, and of course I love that it's going right next to Virginia Tech's brand new campus, right? Like, that campus is going to increase the recognition, funding, and prestige of VT and the university. Like, it was going to do that on its own, because it's this brand new campus that's right next to the Washington, D.C., the capital of the United States of America. But you should have seen last week when all the sports news outlets are reporting on this new arena proposal, and the VT logo is in the background of all the pictures. It's there. So having this arena right next to VT's new innovation campus would be massive. And so I can tell you that my heart is in it, but my brain, not so much. Because again, why can't Leonsis pick up the tab on more of the cost? I mean, I know why, because he'd take his business elsewhere. But also, how is the surrounding area going to deal with thousands of more people than normal in an area where you've already got a major airport in the vicinity and that already deals with traffic issues? That needs to be dealt with. And ultimately, why would I trust Glenjamin to agree to an advantageous deal for Virginia when he's not even fully funding public transportation, which would be necessary for this arena to be successful? And if y'all don't remember... His party, Glenjamin's, just lost in the legislative elections where he put everything he had politically on the line. If he won, y'all, he was going to pass whatever he wanted. He was going to go into the next presidential election as the Republican darling. Oh my goodness, he's amazing. But he lost, and he desperately needs a win. And for him, this may be it. And he frankly hasn't been that great of a governor. It, of course, doesn't help when you focus on bogus critical race theory during your campaign, but I'm extremely skeptical of anything with his fingerprints on it. Of course, we'd have to look into more of the plan. The Washington Post has reported on the plan, but of course, how it actually turns out, we don't know. So I can't really say that I'm in support of the plan, but I wouldn't say I'm entirely opposed either. I guess we'll have to watch over the next few months to see exactly where this goes, because ultimately, In a few months, this might not even be a thing. One of the governments, the local state government or whoever, might just axe the deal. And so then we're back at where we are with Capital One Arena. Which, if they stay at Capital One Arena, that's totally fine. That's probably the preferable situation for most Capitals and Wizards sports fans. Especially if you live in Maryland. Because it'd be harder to get to Virginia than D.C. if you lived in Maryland. I'm just saying. But in conclusion... The question we asked multiple times, should sports stadiums be funded with taxpayer money? Good question. I mean, like a lot of things that happen here in the U.S., it's not common to see this type of thing happen elsewhere. Like in the U.K., for example, very rarely do sports teams receive public funding for their venues. There's a lot of reasons why, including, you know, the Premier League is their most popular sports league, like probably equivalent to our NFL. They have the Premier League. And in the Premier League, you have promotion and relegation. Teams move up, teams move down. So you never know where a team's going to be in five, ten years. The NFL, you don't have that. 
there's a lot of reasons why that doesn't happen in the UK and why it happens here in the US. And of course, there's those that say, you know, the investment pays off in the long run. But wouldn't it be even more advantageous for the states and localities if the stadium was built without public funds in the first place by a billionaire? Like, I understand what's being said in the case of Virginia that Alexandria's funds aren't going to subsidize the billionaire in the scenario. But it's a very fine line. And in most cases, public funds are being used for something the team owner could easily afford, you know? So, all I'm going to say is I think I've given my thoughts on the situation enough. I'm going to leave it up to y'all to make your own judgment with the facts presented. Because ultimately, that's what you should always do on every episode of this podcast. I give out the facts. Make your own opinions. I do share my opinions often. And I feel like I did a lot on this episode, too. But, again... It's not as simple as saying Virginia's giving Ted Leonsis $1.35 billion. Oh my gosh, they're just handing it out to him. It's not that simple. But again, it's also money that the billionaire could pay for on his own in the first place. That's all I'm saying. So that's what I wanted to look at this week. Sports stadiums, their influence on sports politics, local politics, sports stadiums could have a massive influence, like they're going to in Alexandria, the city's going to have elections for their city council next year. You don't think that the stadium deal is going to be a big topic of those elections? It might be the biggest topic in those elections. And so sports stadiums and how their finance is really just one part of this whole sports business that goes behind the curtain on what it takes to get these games played, when, where, how, whatever. So it definitely is fascinating. Hopefully you learned something this week on the podcast as you do every week. And those are all the facts that I've got for episode 127 of the Xander's Facts podcast, y'all. Thank you all so much for listening. And remember that if you liked all the facts that we had on this week's edition, remember to follow this podcast, download this episode, rate and review the podcast, check us out on all the socials, threads, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, at Xander's Facts, that's Xander with a Z. Most importantly, remember to tell all your friends, spread the facts, tell all your friends about the podcast the newsletter, Xander's Weekend Facts, and tell all your friends and yourself, if you haven't, to go subscribe to the Xander's Facts YouTube channel because all our new episodes, including this one, get posted to Xander's Facts on YouTube. You can watch it with a nice background. Go check that out. Subscribe. That link is also in this episode's description, as well as the link for the Xander's Facts link tree, which has all the Xander's Facts links that you need. So, y'all, that is a wrap on episode 127. Episode 128 is coming up next week. I am working through the holidays, y'all, to get you some much-needed facts that you'll only find here on the Xander's Facts Podcast. So we've got more on episode 128. Make sure you tune in next week. And I wish I could promise that it would come earlier in the day on Wednesday, but I honestly have no clue. So that is it. That is a wrap on episode 127 of the Xander's Facts Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll see y'all with episode 128 next week. I love big leaf maples. I do too. Oh, this feels so good.